This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in downtown Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Um, please be seated. We've got a great show for you today. It's a beautiful sunny day here in California, but um, we know that's not the case. Some parts of the East Coast which are being hit hard by the hurricane, so um, our prayers are with you. And um, so we, today we're going to be talking about an important Issue. We, we've already done one show on the whole competition for the Amazon second headquarters, commonly referred to as HQ2. And um, the question that we're going to cover today is at, at what cost? You know, when does it make sense to um, invest and give the tax incentives that uh, are required to learn Amazon and Apple and Intel? And um, so our guest today, um, we're thrilled to have, is Greg Leroy. He's the executive director of GoodJobsFirst.org, and he's calling to us from Washington, D.C., I believe. Greg, are you with us? I am, Bennett. Great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. And um, so Greg caught my attention. He had um, co-authored a piece um, entitled, Cities Need to Stop Selling Out to Big Tech Companies. There's a Better Way. And so I guess that wouldn't fall in that category of titles that don't tell you where, where the author is going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it appeared in, in Subtlety uh, Monthly. and <laughs> <laughs> But it, 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 it was very timely because it, it comes in the middle of the Amazon contest. Um, and so what? tell us uh, – well, first, why don't you tell us about goodjobsfirst.org, and sure. then we, we'll go into what led you to write the piece. Sure. So Good Jobs First is a nonprofit, nonpartisan group that I founded uh, almost exactly 20 years ago. And we're a watchdog group on these incentives, these corporate income tax, sales tax, property tax exemptions, discounts, rebates that states and cities give companies in the name of jobs. Uh, some of the programs are well designed and some of them are really out of control. And sometimes these high stakes, you know, buffalo hunting sweepstakes like HQ2 uh, really put the whole problem on steroids. Let's address the buffalo hunting. Uh, I like the, I like the phrase, um, but it's really you're talking about cities going for some prestige, um, something they can mount on a mantle and say, "Here, you know, um, Joe Voter, I did this for you. I brought this company or that company." Right, exactly, and and obviously, the more famous the company is, the more trophy value it has. Uh, so Amazon being so high profile, being so consumer top rated, 
uh, is ultimate trophy prize or ultimate buffalo uh, to land and mount. But and Apple or Dell or Google or Facebook, they're all in the game these days. Right. And um, and actually, the, we often see this you know, publicly you know, reported in terms of sports franchises. But you know, these days, it's it. You know, there's also a lot of money being given away to companies that you know bring jobs to or 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 keep jobs within a state. Right. So, I mean, there's really kind of an 80-year history to this whole subsidy industrial complex, or whatever you want to call it. But it really ramped up after the war and after the interstate highway system started getting built in the late 50s and 60s. Um, so that. You know, 42 years ago, Business Week magazine coined the phrase second war among the states. That is states, you know, actively poaching jobs from each other, actively designing incentive programs intended to, to induce companies to relocate. And and we've been in that war ever since. We really don't have any federal leadership trying to rein things in. And, you know, as I'm by way of background, I'm a New Englander. And so, uh, you know, when I, when I was growing up, a lot of jobs had recently left. And gone to the south, yeah, North, North Carolina being a, a prominent one, and uh, and you know textiles in particular. And now you know, I understand, you know, they then that allowed their economy to grow, and then <laughs> those jobs went somewhere else, whether it was Mexico or China. Um, so it is an ongoing um, enterprise. Now, you you refer to what is known as big ticket mega deals. What tell us what exactly that is. Sure. I mean, we sort of make the cutoff at $50 million or more per individual project. Most of them, we've identified about 400 now in U.S. history. Most of them are in the hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars. And again, for, for one project, one microchip fabrication plant, one chemical factory, one auto assembly uh, plant. And the, the, the tension here is, you know, too many eggs in one basket or, you know, betting too many marbles on one project at the expense of everything else that might be supporting your local business base. That that's the tension. Yeah, I, I, and actually, I've, I've, I'm full disclosure. I'm a, a native of Rhode Island, uh -huh. and you know, we're going to talk a little bit about one of the, one of their <laughs> their failed attempt. But even before this one, I remember a project in the '70s where the governor actually was um, the company was Digital something. They may have just been called Digital. I just don't remember them, or if they're even if they're still around. But they, they actually built a freeway exit for this factory that they were going to build that never happened, and so you know it, it became a political embarrassment for the governor because here's his exit to nowhere. Yep. Um, so I, I, <laughs> I understand the concept. So we talked uh, on the show with a, a, another show host here, Jim Hedger about the Amazon HQ2 project. And I found it an interesting in, in theory um, because there were two aspects to how Amazon was going to choose uh, in terms of where to locate. One was a list of what they wanted the cities to have. Right. And um, on one level, it was all you could say it was kind of they were looking for what you might politically refer to as a progressive type city, one that had invested in their infrastructure, um, had diversity, you know, had a lot of things that one would associate with a, you know, a progressive city type uh, or state po politics. Mm -hmm. And um, and so that was one level. And so the question, you know, in the second level, though, were the tax incentives. Mm 
mm-hmm. and and there they were they were looking for incentives for them to locate there, and, and so I saw this um, competition being a, a dichotomy, a competition of two political schools of thought. One that you know tries to move action by tax incentives, the other that tries to um, create jobs through investment in infrastructure and by promoting um, a diverse, well-educated workforce. And, you know, the, so there was a little bit of both political stripes in play here. Mm-hmm. What, was your, what, what was your reaction when you well, saw I the RFP? I think you're being very polite to say that that way. I mean, I think of it as, <laughs> as Amazon wanting to have it both ways. That would be my way of putting it. That is, they want they want to not pay any property taxes or sales taxes on their machinery equipment or income taxes but they want great schools, great transit, great quality of life, great infrastructure, you know, great uh, public systems, great law enforcement. Uh, and I don't, and there is no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, I mean, that, and we've written a great deal about this competition. If, and we already know to some degree about some of the packages that were offered, right? They, they openly encouraged everybody to apply, including lots of places that didn't have a prayer that didn't even meet that baseline list of requirements they set out about the, the size of the metro and the international right. air service and the graduate engineering schools and all the things they, they obviously need, any any big high-tech company would need. But um, then they, you know, basically encouraged everybody to apply to gin up the pressure, and then they cut the list to 20 finalists, even though Let's I more pressure. the other observers expected that um, yeah create exactly to maximize the pressure we always suspected that they knew at least what their their short short list looked like before they ever launched the public auction I mean this is a company with such sophisticated consumer data analytics uh, and and labor market I mean they they're citing things all the time right they're citing data centers they're citing warehouses they're they're hiring more people per quarter than Facebook employs altogether they know a great deal about where to put stuff in America because they they do it constantly and they're getting about 20 or so incentive deals a year for the facilities that they're putting up. So um, I think this, and they use the word incentives 21 times in that RFP and otherwise <laughs> the RFP was just kind of a, you know, kitchen sink catch-all laundry list of anything that you would obviously expect a company like them would need. So we, so A, I suspect they knew what their short, short list was from the get-go B, I think the exercise has really been engineered to get the maximum tax breaks, and C, they then want to have it both ways by having somebody else pay for great infrastructure, transit, schools, and quality of life. Right. And that's what it and looks like to us. It's interesting. So you, I just a couple highlight a couple points you made. One about you know, number of cities getting in it that probably had no right to be in the mix, and and I thought that was interesting. But what actually what struck me as interesting were cities that had no right to be in the mix, you know, arguably. Um, announcing that they they didn't want Amazon, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, it's kind of like me here, um, you know, telling Angela Jolie, sorry, I'm married, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that was a pressing issue for her, but you know, you saw cities like Little Rock make a public announcement, saying, you know, we're we're happy with the what we have, and we don't want to, you know. It be get too busy here. So I thought that was well played for this you know, for a couple of cities because they got press out of it. They did, and San Antonio did the same thing, and San Jose did it, although everybody said San Jose's you know, picking out right now on the new Googleplex there, so it was sort of no skin off their teeth. But, yes, they, those three places did get positive reactions to their saying thanks but no thanks. But 
so to get to the heart of what you're you're saying though is, and even before this event, um, you weren't you were a critic of Amazon. In fact, you did a you your group put out a report in 2016 that said elected officials would be best served would best serve the public interest by telling Amazon no more deals. And what led you to reach that conclusion? Sure. So it's really an analysis of the company's business plan. If you think back to when the company first started as a bookseller and then grew its, you know, its product base, its original business model revolved around having very few warehouses and locating them in places so that they could legally avoid so-called nexus, that is, the ability of a state to compel it to collect sales tax. So they locate, um, for instance, in the early years, they served the East Coast markets by putting warehouses in Delaware, which has no sales tax, and New Hampshire, which has no sales tax. And then they ship into the other states on the East Coast. But by shipping into those states and not actually having a warehouse in those states, they can avoid nexus. So they used the, the price advantage that they gained by having no sales tax collected to gain market share. Over time, of course, their business model morphed into prime, right, and rapid delivery, you know, right. two-day delivery, one-day delivery, same-day delivery. And as that evolution took place over the years, and it really started kicking in in 2011, 2012, and finished playing out last year in 2017, they had to put warehouses everywhere. You, you can't have same-day delivery right. in Amarillo and not have a warehouse pretty close to Amarillo, et cetera. So um, they couldn't avoid having Nexus, and they started caving and settling disputes they had with state sales tax departments and state treasurers and so on, often in exchange for getting incentive packages for the new warehouses they had to build. So our message to, to public officials was simpler. We said the company must build gazillions of warehouses now that's what their business model compels them to do don't pay them to do what they have to do anyway right and um going in going into this competition um you obviously given that view of amazon yeah you're, you concluded that the hq2 project quote can go down in history as a monument to high-tech arrogance and tax break favoritism yeah, that's that's the real risk here. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of hubris uh, in in evidence in the way they began the auction. I think they were chastened. I think they were struck a little bit by how much blowback they got between September and January, and they really changed the whole way they were running the auction uh, in January when they when they narrowed from 238 to 20. They they went dark. They went back to the old school. No longer was it a public auction. They said we want to we don't want any publicity or coverage of our site visits. We're not going to we don't want any disclosure of your next round bids. Um, we're going to issue another um, second round RFP that's going to be covered by a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and they've really kept a very low profile. Um, and we think a lot of that has to do with the fact that so many people were upset by the very transparent nature of the, the grab they were staging uh, start, starting in September. So before we get into the substance, do you have an understanding as to who the frontrunners are right now? I, I saw some report that possibly Chicago and Miami um, were, had jumped into the front based on the fact that Amazon had done second visits to those two cities. <laughs> you know, I think the company's been throwing head fakes, and you know, uh, one can get crazy trying to read into tea leaves, right? So they, so Alexa was asked, "What's the weather going to be in Austin during the the uh, Amazon right. Super Bowl ad?" Right, and people said, "Oh, that's a signal." Um, 
people here in the Washington, D.C. area noticed that many people with Amazon URLs were reviewing a real estate listing in downtown Arlington, Virginia, and everybody concluded, well, that must mean they're sizing up, they're ready to clinch the deal in Arlington. Um, you know, I they made a charitable contribution recently to a school in Philadelphia, and everybody said, oh, what is it? That's, that must be an advanced signal. Uh, I think this is a big company that's already doing a lot of business in a lot of labor markets, and I think they're enjoying watching people scramble with these little head fakes. But I, I will say publicly, the only city on the 20 list that I've n never thought could be very competitive is Atlanta because it's got such bad public transportation. It's so hard to take advantage of the labor market there because congestion is so awful. Um, I do think that one or more of the project sites here in the D.C. area are likely to make the next cut, perhaps in combination. The, the two governors of Maryland and Virginia, the mayor of D.C., have already sent a letter to Bezos essentially saying they would not be upset if he were to sprinkle the project around the metro area here. I think other East Coast projects, uh, sites like Philly and Newark, uh, may be competitive as well. Uh, with Dallas, I've always thought, was a very competitive uh, project. But, uh, you know, the other, the other unknowable thing here, and this really goes to the, the core of, of Amazon, is we don't know what company this is going to be 10 years from now. We don't have any idea what Bezos is going to buy next, right? They've been on a big right. acquisitions binge. We don't know what they're going to grow next. And I think that, with no, not being able to know that, we can't know like what he particularly needs. If he's going to become a big food processor, for example, Chicago would be a brilliant choice because that's become a big hub for corporate headquarters for food processing with Conagra and ADM both relocating there in recent years, for example. But I doubt that. But that would make sense if he were, for example. Right. Um, you're pretty sure it won't be Little Rock. <laughs> I'm thinking not. <laughs> <laughs> so um, with that, you know, with that kind of handicapping, um, yeah, I've I've always often heard Washington D.C. is a front runner just because of you know what it has to offer and as, and the fact that you know he has the Washington Post there as well. But um, well, there is one problem with this process. And, and that is, this is not a public process. Right. Um, for example, the Cook County, the Chicago Tribune reported that Cook County had pr promised incentives in the ballpark of $2 billion. Right. And where was the debate over that? Yeah, nowhere. I mean, that's, that's the problem. We also put a study out examining how poorly disclosed were the 20 finalist bids. Of those 20, only two have been really fully disclosed. Um, Which Boston two are those? At Boston and Toronto. And then another six have been partially disclosed or sort of broadly described. And we even put the Chicago bid in there because at least it had been price tagged and we sort of, and we could tell from the outside what the, which major incentive program was going to be involved. But, you know, many of the big, biggest ones we said, and, and a few others were public because they required enactments. So, for example, Maryland's has been through the, the legislature already, so we know the broad outlines of that one as well. Um, and uh, But Pennsylvania's very secret. Both the cities of Pittsburgh and Philadelphia continue to thumb their nose at adverse rulings from the State Open Records Office and refuse to disclose that bid. Uh, we don't know much about Columbus or Indianapolis or Atlanta, really. Um, it's it's it, Despite the appearance of running a public auction, which is the way they started, it's actually a very secretive deal you're right and then that's a that's a public policy concern um i'd like to go into what 
we we talked a little bit about the costs of the, the HQ2 proposal, um, but we should also talk about the benefit. But but for first, I think we need to take a, a short break um, for our advertisers. Um, you're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing, and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Webmasterradio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. Webmasterradio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Greg Leroy about Amazon HQ2 and this the general concept of cities basically trying to lure prestige tech companies or any company for that matter through t- tax subsidies and tax incentives. And uh, before the break, we were talking, kind of handicapping the um, the sweepstakes for Amazon HQ2 with the with both of us agreeing Little Rock was the front runner. And, <laughs> and, um, but there are in, in you know some defense of Amazon there there are huge economic benefits to having Amazon in your um, in your jurisdiction as a second headquarters right so that's the upside here obviously they're talking about at, over time 10 15 years as many as 50,000 headquarters employees making an average of $100,000 or better Obviously, that's, those would be big ripple effects because you'd get both a lot of upstream uh, purchasing power, you know, business services, transportation services, um, consulting utilities, things like that, um, as well as a lot of downstream ripple effects. That is, uh, paychecks that good, people buy homes, people buy cars, people eat right. a lot, create a lot of other jobs. Um, the The other tension, though, that's come up as people have weighed the the costs and benefits is the so-called Seattle effect. That is the fact that, you know, no company is more dominant in a class A uh, office space market than Amazon is in Seattle. They've got about 20% of it, as I understand. And a lot of people say Amazon has more to do than anybody else with the very rapidly rising home prices in Seattle, the unusually large homeless population uh, and the general, you know, housing affordability uh, problem 
created by having so many people hired so quickly at such high uh, wage levels so or salary levels so the the tension that a lot of community groups have raised in those 20 finalist cities is how to cushion the blow how to make sure that the project doesn't displace incumbent residents uh, at the expense of the newbies uh, because you know even especially in a tight labor market but even in normal times you'd guess 80 or, uh, studies would tell us that 80 or 85 percent of the job takers for a project like this won't be incumbent residents there'll be people moving from outside the area so the question is well if local residents are going to get less than a fifth of the jobs and they're going to get higher housing prices more traffic congestion and crowded schools well what's how much can you like that so that that's right. the tension right and but in in this case i mean you've looked at amazon's projects elsewhere in fact you were very critical of their position in ohio where they they located um, was it data centers or was it um, shipping centers? More warehouses, yeah. Several. Yeah, warehouses. so they did warehouses, which they had to do for fulfillment. And mm-hmm. and granted, in in those places, you know, Amazon had a disproportionate number of employees on food stamps. You know, give relative to the number, you know, its number of jobs it was providing. Uh, it was one of the top ten or fifteen employers in the state of Ohio that had employees on food stamps, even though it was like the 50th or 60th largest employer. Um, um, But this project is different than a warehouse. This is, this is going to be more higher paying jobs. So, you know, people are hoping for that ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's also drives the, the site location decision, right? This is all about brain cells. It's not about real estate. It's not about, uh, you know, grid connections. Uh, if you're going to hire 50,000 brainiacs, you've got to go to a place that already has quite a few corporate headquarters already, because you so you can grab some of them away from other companies. You've got to have some great graduate schools, not just in engineering, but law and accounting and marketing and other things like that. Um, and you've got to have a quality of life that's good enough to attract people, right? Because if you expect to hire somebody and transfer them to the new city. The first question the family is going to ask is, how good are the schools? Can we right. afford the houses? How long is the commute going to be? As well they should. So going back to the broader topic of buffalo hunting, uh, you, you, your report on um, you know, big ticket deals you know, highlights the problem with that, where you have uh, states or localities going after you know, the big employer and in the process, spending exorbitant amount of money on a per job basis. For example, Iowa, their data center with deal with Apple um, could have cost per job as high as four million per job. Right. Um, you mentioned in North Carolina had also did a data center deal with Apple that could be as much as um, as much as six point four million per job. Yeah. And uh, it's just, it, um, how does you know how does that benefit the taxpayers? <laughs> well, it doesn't, and, that, and that's the problem. Look, you know, t- to be intellectually honest here, there are certain kinds of projects that are extremely capital intensive, right? Certain kinds of manufacturing has become over time very capital intensive, like microchip fabrication, like chemical manufacturing and petrochemical processing. And now data centers, that is cloud computing centers, which are essentially rooms full of servers 
you know, with a small number of people watching them and, and making sure and troubleshooting them once they're built. Um, and so if you give a big tax break package to a place that employs just dozens of people, the cost per job is enormous. And, and we think, you know, obviously we don't think that these tax breaks are causing these data centers to get built, right? Everybody knows that the cloud is taking off. It's, right. it's the way computing happens in America today. They've all got, they, you know, there's hundreds of them out there and there's hundreds more going to get built no matter what, because that's, that's the way YouTube stores your videos and Snapchat and everybody else. So um, we think the money would be much better spent at that rate, you know, on better schools, better roads, things that benefit lots of employers. Now, I actually, I, I understand the data center issue in, yeah. because there, there was a point where in downtown Los Angeles, during the, the crash of the yeah. dot-com crash, that real estate was so low in downtown LA um, just before the kind of boom from the moving the arena there that uh, a lot of the office space was was leased up by data centers and and it was mm-hmm. it was actually hurting downtown because those places don't have employees right. and so they weren't shopping at the stores they weren't eating at the restaurants and that a lot of downtown's renaissance came when those leases rent came up and you know, it, it was no longer cheap to to do so, and um, and now downtown LA is doing better. Um, so I, I can I understand that the challenge for that. But I, I remember once sitting down with a senator, and I, I, I don't know if I'm liberty to say who, but he was from a, a state that's one of the poorer states in the country, and he we was with a bunch of tech people at the table, and he said, you know, it would be huge. For us to land someone like Apple, or you know any tech company to open an office here, or you know put some data center here, it would just be a signal um, to the rest of the country that you know we we are open for business in this area. You know it's kind of planting the flag that you know locate in state X because you know we have Apple, we have you know Intel or whoever, right. and. There's that sense that we, we maybe we chase the first one, but then that the second one we don't have to chase as hard. And there's there can be merit to that. It really depends upon how the buffalo fits into the bigger picture. That is, if you believe your state, your your region, your metro area has a comparative advantage. So in the case of microchips and or in data centers, if you have cheap electricity because you have hydropower, that gives you a comparative advantage to attract. Uh, more of those to make a cluster out of it, for example. Um, if you've got a tech uh, department, if you've got a computer sciences department in a university, you know, turning out really smart people, uh, and you'd like to keep them there and, and build companies around them. If you've got other comparative advantages in terms of, uh, you know, quality of life and uh, tr- transportation access, or may- maybe you've already had a few startups that have prospered in your area and, and they have cumulatively begun to build your comparative advantage to attract companies like them, then my argument would be take those basics, whatever those basics are that are giving you that advantage, and and strengthen them. But do it in a way where you're not putting a lot of eggs in any one basket. You know, keep investing in that graduate engineering school. Keep improving on that quality of life. Keep um, helping smaller companies with, you know, whatever it is they need, healthcare, quality control, export promotion, you know, 
it always varies depending on who they are. Right. But um, that way you're spreading your risk and you're growing the cluster and, and continuing to make your place a better value proposition for, for more employers to grow. And I want to get into that in a minute, but first I'd like to mm-hmm. highlight, I guess, a, a couple of um, maybe dead buffaloes, if continuing <laughs> the analogy. And, and two that come to mind, uh, they're, they're different in, some, in style or substance. One is, you, first of all, a lot of the buffaloes are trying to land an out-of-state company. Right. And, uh, and then, but some of the buffaloes are trying to keep your prestige company from moving. And so in the first category, you have a, a, a situation like 38 Studios. Right. And then the second one you have with, with Rhode Island trying to lure them from Massachusetts. Uh, and then giving them $75 million in loan guarantees right. um, to move, and then they file for bankruptcy 13 months later. Um, this, this in notoriously corrupt Rhode Island. Uh, and the second <laughs> one, uh, you have a, a company like, uh, a state like Washington trying to keep its huge employer Boeing, mm-hmm. um, and they give them nearly nine billion in tax breaks right. without conditioning it on them, you know, continuing to provide employment to, in Washington, and they lay off fifteen percent of their workforce. Right. Can you highlight a little bit about each of those? Sure. So the 38 Studios, named for the the number that Kurt Schilling, the former Red Sox pitcher, wore when he was a star athlete, um, it was a, a great example of states getting really sloppy, especially during the recession, and hasty and failing to vet deals carefully enough. If they had really looked carefully at Mr. Schilling and the company that they were going to bet $75 million on, they would have thought twice and three times because there really wasn't enough of a track record there of successful you know video game production um, and they would have built in more safeguards to get the money back if the deal failed uh, and they didn't and, and the state actually had to take on some debt to float to make those payments uh, it's in, in, uh, I don't know what the outcome of the litigation was but there were criminal charges filed later uh, there were there was SEG I think ultimately they were on the hook for about 25 million okay all right that's a big number for a yeah. small state for, for a little bang yeah yeah and then in, in Puget Sound in, in Seattle with Boeing, King County there, Snohomish counties, you know, obviously this is a big employer. It's been there for a very long time, big global customer base, big supplier base of other firms making things that go into the planes they assemble there. Um, and they've actually twice gotten big subsidy packages from the state, once for the 787 Dreamliner back in 2003 worth about $3 billion, and then again in 2013 for the 777 product line, worth $8.7 billion. Uh, two different governors, two different Democratic governors, two different state legislatures, uh, same kind of result. And they, and they ran public multi-state auctions to gin up pressure on Washington State in each case uh, before getting those packages. And also, in, in the latter case, also um, making big concessions demands on the bargaining units, the machinists and engineers bargaining units uh, at the factories. The trouble, as you explained, though, with especially with this, with both deals, but especially the last deal, is that they didn't put a any kind of safeguard in place that says, in addition to us not taxing this new product line, the 777 that you're going to promise to build in our state, we want you to commit to keeping your headcount reasonably stable here, your overall headcount, including lots of people that make things besides the 777. Right. And they didn't, and so jumping through that loophole, the company has laid off a lot of people, moved a lot of jobs to other states and still is on track to get the 
the big package. It, that and I think there's some effort to claw it back, but yeah, um, it yeah, really was been, an embarrassment. There's been proposed legislation to hold them accountable. I mean, we actually testified on this. One of our staff people used to work from Seattle. We pointed out that in three of the biggest states, California, Missouri, and I forget the third state, to which they had moved uh, facilities or have other subsidized uh, facilities, Boeing is subject to statewide headcount maintenance requirements. So what, it's not like something they don't know how to to deal with. Well, that's pouring salt in the wound. <laughs> the uh, So getting back to what what localities should do mm-hmm. in, in, in how they should respond to these type of offers, you, you, your article, which was co-authored with a professor from the University of North Carolina, really cited uh, the whole North Carolina Raleigh Research Triangle area in Austin as examples of uh, jurisdictions that got it right. Well, why was that? Yeah, and so it was uh, Dr. Marianne Feldman was my co-author from the University of North Carolina at the Kennan Business School there. And the point we were making is that if you look at places like the Research Triangle there in North Carolina or Austin, Texas, the for us, the, the smart takeaway is that they invested in public goods that benefited lots of young companies um, in, in supporting their engineering skills base and supporting their technology development base um, and really bridged the public-private sector gap in a way that, that didn't, wasn't buffalo hunting, was the antithesis of buffalo hunting, was saying, look, we think we've got comparative advantages in the case of Austin and you know, computer sciences with Dell already here up in Round Rock and and some other promising things going on. We'll keep at one point uh, Hewlett Packard, to its credit, actually turned down a big package from Texas and said, "No, take that money and give it to UT's engineering school, and then we'll hire a bunch of brainiacs when they graduate." And that's what they did, and they thrived. Um, and Marianne is very familiar with this. She's a, an expert in the history of entrepreneurship and how you know regional clusters develop. And that's her takeaway too. If you look at the long-term picture, the smart takeaway is avoid the mega deals, invest in things that benefit promising clusters of emerging companies. And related to that, North Carolina is a hybrid for two points. One is this point. Um, and, and Austin as well, is the idea of focusing on your comparative edge. But there's also the, a larger point of the need for investment in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know North Carolina, I think going back to the 60s or 70s, and the you know, Governor Terry Sanford, who later became Senator Sanford, mm-hmm. m- developed a plan to kind of take the state out of you know a, a backwater place and into making it a major you know uh, center of industry, and largely through investment in education. And in, in infrastructure, making, for example, UNC right now is one of the it's, the phrases called public IVs, yep. you know, public institutions that are you know are as good as or even better than some of the Ivy League schools. And University of North Carolina is one of them. And another one is you know here in California, um, four of the top ten uh, public IVs are from the, what they call the UC system, University of California system. You have mm-hmm. actually one, number one is last ranking I saw was UCLA, um, mm-hmm. followed by you know, Berkeley, UC Santa Barbara, and also UC Irvine. And, uh, I looked at, um, some uh, data provided by the UC system and, uh, which includes 61 Nobel laureates, uh, for every dollar that taxpayers invest in them, 
it results in um, $9.80 in gross state product and $13.80 in overall economic output. And it, so it's a recognition that you, this, inf- this investment is just, uh, just that. It's an investment. It will yield something. Yeah, I think there's no coincidence that California is home to Silicon Valley because of the state's rich historical investment in its public university systems. You know, obviously there's other things that helped make that happen, especially in the Bay Area with the history of wealth there and therefore venture capital being available. But it really was kind of a virtuous cycle of robust public investment in your sciences and engineering schools, the availability of venture capital to help commercialize some of the new technology getting developed, and then just building on that. Uh, And very similar story with the research triangle in North Carolina, where you've had a history, as you said, under beginning under Governor Sanford, of a philosophy saying we're not going to do big buffalo hunting, we're not going to cut these extremely expensive one-offs. We're going to have great schools. We're going to have. We're going to try to grow our public Ivy University into a world-class institution, and make it attractive for lots of companies to be here. And there's been bumps in the road. They veered away from that for a while, especially in the '90s, starting in the late '90s, with a thing called the William S. Lee Act. But that that kind of actually libertarian-flavored philosophy of economic development, I think, has served North Carolina well. And we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the what states should do after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Learn more at miamibookfair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions from the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. A more refreshing kind of talk radio. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking with Greg Leroy. Uh, good jobs first. And before we continue, just a reminder that there is a background on Greg and his uh, his accomplishments uh, on our blog, as always, at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. 
Follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. In addition, you may have heard the ad for the Miami Book Fair, and that season is now upon us. We're going to be interviewing a number of authors from uh, the book fair, including uh, Ramana Ahmed of West Wingers, um, James Miller, Can Democracy Work, Miriam Powell, the Browns of California, and uh, Bill Press, Trump Must Go, uh, Alyssa Court of Squeezed, and uh, that's just a few. So we're looking forward to that season being upon us. But right now we're, we're talking about states or localities that get it right in terms of negotiating with tech and building a tech-friendly um, environment. And one area that we focus a lot on in this show and has been Chattanooga, Tennessee. And they actually grew by investing in a smart grid that gave them, a, may still be the fastest internet in the U.S. Um, its first five years yielded a billion dollars in economic benefit and as many as um, 5,200 new jobs. And what do you think of a model like uh, Chattanooga that decides to, you know, it had a well-educated workforce to begin with, mm-hmm. and, and decides to invest and jumpstart its economy through infrastructure? I think it was terrific. I mean, there's lots to love about the Chattanooga story. In addition to the municipal broadband upgrade that they did, you know, they had been reinvesting in their waterfront. They had been reclaiming their downtown. They had been promoting transit-oriented development and uh, housing upgrades. And I think it was all of one piece, but they realized that they could get a leg up by having high-speed Internet. And, um, you know, certainly if you there's other groups out there like the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, ILSR.org on the web, very active in the space of promoting municipal broadband or community-based, you know, uh, Internet access upgrades. And I think it's a very smart strategy because, obviously, it's the future. Lots more businesses can t- – people can telecommute. You can do uh, remote marketing and um, – web-based sales and so forth um and it's obviously can't if, if it's done well if it's if it's affordable it can be an enormous way to break down the so-called digital divide especially between uh, communities of color that have uh, denied them this robust access to the benefits of internet access so um you know i think we need to think of the internet the same way we think of sewer water and roads and schools it is a public right we should all have access to it it should be affordable for everybody I mean, at the same time, it's interesting. The very same day that um, the Obama FCC voted to pass its net neutrality measure, it also voted on a provision that would have preempted state laws that prohibit investment in broadband by municipalities. And what you saw after Chattanooga and a number of other jurisdictions started launching their own municipal broadband is that the telcos decided to go to the state legislatures and use their muscle to get those uh, shut down or prohibit further investment in broadband. And, uh, and so the FCC tried to preempt those state laws, including North Carolina's and Tennessee's, that would uh, have done that, and they ultimately that got reversed in court. So it's an interesting thing, whereas the very same people looking for largesse from the state capitals are also trying to prevent competition (laughs) at the same time. Now, we only have a a short bit of time left, and uh, 
I want to go in some of the measures that you also su- suggest states consider as a way to prevent what's often referred to as a race to the bottom. I thought one was interesting was in Kansas City, uh, a bi-state ceasefire agreement. Explain how that worked. Sure. So, oh, beginning seven years ago, a group of uh, 17 prominent business, prominent business leaders in the Kansas City metro area, led by the Hall family, who are Hallmark Card Company, Seven years ago, they began yelling publicly at then-Governor Nixon of Missouri and then-Governor Brownback of of Kansas saying, you know, there's these companies that keep jumping back and forth across the state line here in the Kansas City metro area. You keep giving them, you know, eight-figure subsidy packages. They're they're not really creating any new jobs. They're just changing people's commuting patterns and cashing in when you do that for them. Quit it. You know, we're getting ripped off. This isn't fair. And in 2014, they actually prevailed upon the – Missouri legislature, which was led in majority Republican in both houses, and the Democratic Governor Nixon to make a legal to enact a legally binding offer that then went to Brownback, who had the power in his state to reciprocate administratively if he so chose. And the offer said, if within two years from mid-2014 you agree to this, we will carve out that Kansas City metro area on both sides and say, you don't get paid to just jump the state line and change people's commuting patterns. We're going to grow the area, but we're not going to pay people to just move around. And uh, to his discredit, uh, and I don't know why, uh, there was never much uh, explained, Brownback let the offer die in 2016. He has not, um, and he's now in his final months as governor, and he's a very unpopular governor, so who knows why he did that. Uh, another thing you suggest is um, the two, I guess, probably go together. One is to um, cap subsidies at a per job amount, um, and the other is really a public, you know, having this in in public a debate over this, have it be required that these things be publicly disclosed and debated. Right. So we've been very big fans of disclosure for a long time, and we've actually made a lot of progress on that front. Uh, we at Good Jobs First started issuing rep- so-called report card studies on how well or how poorly state governments disclosed their economic development awards online, that is company-specific, you know, deal-specific records of how much the deal cost and how the deal's playing out over time. And um, whereas fewer than half used to disclose 12 years ago when we started doing that, today all the states have to some degree uh, disclosing their deals online. There's still lots of room for improvement, but but we've really made a big progress, and we collect all that data and put it in a big database on our website called Subsidy Tracker. Then this debate, you know, we need to go back, because Uncle Sam is nowhere missing in action here. Um, as a lawyer, you could look it up. There's a case called Daimler-Chrysler v. Cuno, a Supreme Court case, an appealing of decision from the Sixth Circuit out of Toledo, Ohio, in which Cuno v. Daimler Chrysler uh, was ruled that the state of Ohio was interfering with the commerce of Michigan. It's a commerce clause under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Ohio interfered with Michigan's commerce by paying Daimler Chrysler to build a, a new factory in Toledo, Ohio. The Supreme Court did not rule on the on the substance of the case. They threw it out on standing, unfortunately. But the oral arguments were excruciating, and, and I think the good guys would have lost if they had ruled on the Commerce Clause issues. So we haven't had a debate, for example, among the National Governors Association on this issue for 25 years. They, they refused to discuss the issue. 
Uh, and occasionally we have rogue governors like Rick Perry visiting California and five other states back in 2013, you know, self-promoting his, his advanced uh, candidacy by radio and TV ads and trying to pirate jobs to Texas. This is no way to run a country. This is no way to have industrial policy. But it did, for example, in California, it was noted, for example, when during when Schwarzenegger was governor and mm. there were salary caps at, at the UC systems that some of the professors were going to UT, they were going to UNC, and that basically we are not investing in our jewels would lead them to them being taken away. Well, then, look, this is a long-term legacy of Proposition 13, and there's obviously a large body of research and advocacy around this, especially... I think from smart groups like the Public Policy Institute of California, you know, the long-term legacy of Proposition 13 has been to artificially depress the amount of revenue available to maintain your jewels there in California. And I know there's debates about possibly amending the law in a way on the 2020 ballot there, and I welcome everybody's attention to that proposal because it would begin to, to fix some of the problems. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's fair to let some companies be sitting on really old uh, assessed valuations and new companies paying full freight for today's right. values. That's, that's just not fair to anybody, frankly, and especially not fair to everybody who wants great schools and infrastructure. Right. And we only have two minutes left. Uh, mm -hmm. If people want to learn more about Good Jobs First and you, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, goodjobsfirst.org. That's all one word, and first is spelled out. And... Uh, do you have any upcoming events or reports that you want to highlight? We do. We're about to issue a study. So we won this obscure accounting rule called GASB Statement 77 on tax abatement disclosures. It's, it's a rule that says most local and state governments have to finally report how much revenue they lose to these corporate tax break programs. So we're going to issue a study looking at how much revenue has been lost to school districts all around the country thanks to this new disclosure rule. And uh, it's a lot. Spoiler alert, it's a big number. Wow. All right. We'll look forward to that. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's a very important debate to have. And uh, so I want to thank you again. In addition, uh, I want to extend our condolences to the Georgetown Law community on the passing of former Dean Robert Potofsky. He was also a former chairman of twice of the Federal Trade Commission and uh, a giant in antitrust law. So um, our condolences to him and his family and the Georgetown community. Um, but we will be back next week with another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Until then, um, check us out on the web at cyberlawradio.com as well as our blog, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at cyberlawradio. Also check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. Thank you again and look forward to talking to you next week. Go Red Sox. Bye. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.